Well, good morning. Will you pray with me? Father, as now we come to study uh, your word, which we believe does its work in us. It is like a fire and a hammer that shatters the rock into pieces. We pray that you would help us to understand what you've caused to be written for our instruction so that we might believe what Scripture teaches and trust what it promises and obey what it commands. To the glory of your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, open to Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers would be happy to, to give one to you. Just stick your hand up, they'll, they'll pass you one. If you don't own a Bible, uh, you are more than welcome to take this one home with you. This is our, our gift to you. I uh, talked to Pastor Tom earlier this week. Just so you know, he does still work here. Um, I did ask him if he was ever coming back. He said, only if they make me. He said, a wide door has opened for ministry for me. And I said, are you defining ministry as fishing? Uh, then there is a wide door for ministry. He is preaching this morning at a church in, in Maine. He and, and his family have been in Maine for a long time. We're happy that they can get away for that rest. I believe he's coming back next week, so you can make your plans accordingly. I'm just kidding. So we're in the third week of a, uh, a little mini-series that we've been doing uh, that we called Faithfulness to God's Mission. And two weeks ago, Bob talked about his conviction and the conviction really that all of us as leaders share that we're, we're on the threshold of entering a new phase in the ministry of our church, one that we see characterized by a renewed commitment to strengthening evangelism and discipleship resulting in maturing disciples and multiplying churches. Now that's not a new mission statement, right? Our mission statement is to advance the gospel by making disciples who make disciples. But this idea of strengthening evangelism and discipleship that results in maturing disciples and multiplying churches is really a way of us explaining how do we think we're going to be going about this uh, in the next three to five years or so. This is kind of what, what is our vision for the next phase of ministry look like? Now, last week, Austin expanded on, on this idea more, and he made a, a great point in his message and alluded to the fact that I was going to pick up on it some this week. And so he said, in order for us to be multiplying churches, we first need to be making and maturing disciples. And so we want to circle back around to that idea this week and dig into it a little bit more. If we want to be a church that's about making and maturing disciples and that leads to multiplying healthy disciple-making churches, then it means that we need to have a clear conviction of and a clear commitment to how God has designed uh, the making and maturing of disciples to happen in the church. We need to have a clear picture of how God has designed the growth of the body of Christ to work. And so that's the design that we're going to be looking at today in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 11 to 16. So I'm going to read the, the passage and then as we, as we walk through it, try to build out a basic definition for this design that God has for the growth of the body. 
Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. Listen, this is God's word. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, which to, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, Christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. There's a lot there. Actually, I learned this week as I looked at the passage, that's uh, verses 11 to 16, that's one sentence in Greek. One sentence. We obviously can't do that, it would make terrible English, but it's good Greek. But it's what, so it's all this, what, this, this a sentence on one, one idea. An idea has to do with the growth of the body. Um, Scott mentioned as he was talking about uh, us all being a part of one body. And, and this, is a, this is a metaphor that Paul uses a number of times for the church. He calls the church the body of Christ, and he's using it as this, this metaphor for talking about how there's, there's one head, Christ is the head of the church, but all of us, are, our members are parts of the body, and this metaphor of a, of a human body. And, and in this passage, he's comparing the way that the church grows to the way that, that a human being grows out of childhood and into maturity, and how he's designed that to happen. So the first thing to see as we look at this this passage is just the fact that God indeed has designed the body to grow. The, 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 the body of Christ, the church, is not something that God just uh, dropped out of heaven fully mature, nor is it something that was created by a bunch of people who, who got saved and then decided to sit around until Jesus came back and not change. God designed the church to grow. And when we talk about church growth, a lot of people start shifting in their seats and getting uncomfortable. But what we're not talking about, what we're decidedly not talking about in this passage is growth in terms of money or buildings or number of people in attendance or influence or anything like that. We're talking about spiritual growth of the people who make up the body. So the growth of the body is God's design. It's the work of ministry. The growth of the body is the work of ministry. Look at verse 12. God has given all of these people, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Now, that, that phrase, I, I want to spend a second on that. Notice that the word work is singular. The work 
of service. If you have the, the NIV, your translation says, the works of service. I think that's an unfortunate mistranslation because the word is not plural in Greek, it's singular. It's the work of service. And so what, what is in view here, I don't think, is all of the different good works that Christians can be involved in and should be involved in. He's not talking about the things like in Ephesians 2.10 where it says that we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared in advance for us to walk in. That's true. We have been uniquely gifted as individuals by the Spirit of God to carry out different callings and be able to, to serve in all sorts of different ways and, and do good works, but that's not what he's talking about here. It's a, it's a single work. He calls it the work of service. The word service is the same word as the word ministry. If you have uh, some other translations, you'll see it's translated as the work of ministry. And, and I think ministry is a, is a better translation here, and the reason why is because when I hear the word service, I hear things like service projects. Uh, I hear things that, that often will meet physical, tangible needs. A and there are things that the church does that are, are, are a part of meeting those kind of needs, and that's important. But I don't think that's what, what he's talking about here. He's talking about the work of ministry, the, the church's one primary work of ministry, which then he says is the building up of the body of Christ. We are to, in verse 15, he says, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, Christ. In verse 16, he says that this is all about the growth of the body, building itself up in love. And so that regardless of all of the other things that the church can be involved in, the church's one primary principal ministry is the building up of the body of Christ, what we call discipleship. And just as an aside, when I say we're, we're talking about the church's ministry of discipleship, right, if the work of ministry is discipleship, what I'm not talking about is discipleship ministry uh, as if it's something that just exists alongside uh, kids ministry and worship ministry and youth ministry and, and small group ministry and outreach ministry and, and then discipleship ministry, like it's a separate program of the church. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying all of those things are discipleship. Discipleship is the purpose of the church and all of those things serve to make disciples, right? VBS is about disciples. The Holland Youth Trip is about making disciples. All of the things that we do, worship is about making disciples. You want to talk about that? Talk to Benjamin about how the concept of forming people into the image of Christ shapes the way that they go about planning worship services. Everything that the church does is about discipleship, or it should be. That's the, the primary work of ministry. So God's designed the body to grow, and that's the, the work of ministry is the growth of the body. And then the growth of the body results ultimately in Christ-like maturity. So we see that 
the idea of growth is not growth in those tangible things like do we have more money and bigger buildings. We don't care about that. We care about the number of people who are meeting Jesus and growing up in him. It's the only number we care about. See, growth in this passage is specifically spiritual growth that results in spiritual maturity, which you call Christ-likeness. Look at two phrases from verse 13 to see this. It says that uh, the building up of the body of Christ is, is this work of ministry, this work of service, until we all attain to unity of the faith and of knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. It's kind of an odd phrase. What does it mean to attain to a mature man? Well, if you remember that, that Paul's using this metaphor of the body, and then in the next uh, verse, in verse 14, he talks about this meaning that we are no longer to be children. And the idea of attaining to a mature man is really just the way of Paul saying that the body is going to grow up out of spiritual childhood into spiritual adulthood or spiritual maturity. The body as a whole is going to, to grow. And then the next phrase, he says that we're going to attain to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, which is a confusing sentence or phrase, and it's just as confusing in Greek as it is in English. But the basic idea is that as we grow in maturity, the measuring rule or standard by which maturity is evaluated is Christ. So spiritual maturity is about growing up to become more like Christ. We don't measure our spiritual maturity compared to other people so much as we measure it compared to Christ himself, who is the fully spiritually mature, perfect person. So how are we to grow up into Christ? In what, in what ways? And verse 15 says, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, Christ. And so as we pursue spiritual maturity, we are to, to grow up in every possible way to become more like Jesus. And the language here is, is very corporate, uh, corporate in the sense of it being about the whole body. But this in also implies individual and personal growth as well. The whole body can't grow unless the individuals in the body are growing, right? And, and I think that's assumed, particularly at the beginning of verse 13, he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, that this is this growth of the body and maturity, which is God's design for the church, that it's going to grow and become spiritually mature, only happens as we all attain to it. So everybody is expected to grow in spiritual maturity. See, there's, there's no such thing as Peter Pan Christianity, where you're born again and then you never grow. You never grow up. You wanna stay a child forever. You will search long and hard in the New Testament to find that idea. The only place you'll find something like that is when it's being rebuked 
Now, just a, 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 as an aside, if you are not growing in spiritual maturity, if, you, if you're not experiencing any kind of spiritual growth, and there's different ways that it happens and seasons where it happens in greater or lesser measure, but if you're not experiencing spiritual growth, I want to suggest it maybe for one of two reasons. The first is a, a lack of spiritual growth in your own personal life is, can be the result of spiritual laziness. This is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 5. He says, I have much more to tell you, but I can't because you've become too lazy to understand. And even though you should be teachers by now, you still need someone to teach you. You're still dependent. You're still in your spiritual infancy. Now, being, being in that stage of spiritual infancy is not a problem if you ought to be a, a, a child. You've just recently come to know the Lord. That's the most appropriate stage for you to be in. I, I have a daughter who's two months old, and it's very appropriate for her to be doing two-month-old stuff. It would be very different if she was 16 and she was doing two-month-old stuff. And so, some people, some of us who ought to be more mature spiritually than we are, are, are still stuck in this spiritual childhood. The cares of the world have, have choked out the seed of the word so it bears no fruit. So you may need to, to get a jolt to get back in the race and start taking your spiritual growth seriously. But a lack of spiritual growth could also be a sign not just that you're spiritual, spiritually lazy, but you're spiritually lifeless. Jesus said, if you abide in me, if you're connected to me, you will grow and bear much fruit. And so if you're not growing and bearing fruit in your spiritual life, it may be because you're not connected to Jesus. And I think there are some of you that need to think about that. But remember that growing, bearing fruit, growing in spiritual maturity uh, is not what saves you. And so that uh, if you're thinking, I'm not growing spiritually, there's something wrong, the, the goal is not to just start trying really hard to do good works and grow in spiritual maturity, the first thing that you need to do is to get connected to Jesus. If you come to him by faith and he receives you and you receive the forgiveness of sins as a gift of grace, he then grows you. Right? If you're born again, you will grow. This is the natural or supernatural process. Some of you may need to think about where you are in terms of that. Well, God has designed the body to grow, both corporately as a, as a group and then individually, all of us in it. How does that growth actually happen? Well, look at verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head even Christ. So God has designed the body to grow by 
the work of speaking the truth in love. Right? Speaking the truth in love is the means that God has given the, the body to grow. Now, uh, up front we want to say, of course, God is the one who gives growth. Right? We don't produce it. Someone plants, someone waters, God gives growth. It's a work of His Spirit, it's a work of grace, but God has ordained certain means by which the Spirit is going to graciously give growth. And that's what we're looking at. And, and according to Paul here, the means is speaking the truth in love. Now, I want to clear up a misconception about what that means. See, we can often think that speaking the truth in love just means telling it like it is, but doing it in a loving way to soften the blow, right? That I need to correct somebody, I need to bring, bring them some kind of rebu rebuke or reproof, uh, something I've seen in their life, and, oh, I just got to speak the truth in love, brother. Uh, and so, now sometimes we can, that can be a code for, uh, I got to speak the truth in love, which means I'm going to tell you something that I don't like about you that's really not a sin and I don't need to tell you, but I'm, I'm going to say I'm doing it in love. And so that's, that's okay. This thing gets abused all sorts of different ways, but that's not what this phrase means. This phrase does not mean I got to say hard things nicely. That may be an implication of it in some sense, but that's not what we're talking about. Here, Because you see, the, the idea of truth in the book of Ephesians is tied inextricably to the truth of the gospel. In Ephesians 1, 13, Paul says, you heard about this in the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In Ephesians 4, 21, just a few verses down from here, he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as the truth is in Jesus. It's the content of the truth. Ephesians 4.24, just a few verses down from there, Paul says that we are to put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Could perhaps better be translated from the truth. That the, the new self that has been created has been created from the truth or by the truth. So what is that truth? It's not just saying things that are true. It's the truth of the word of the gospel that gives life. And Austin talked about this last week in 1 Peter 1, 23, 25. It says, you have been born again. There's the new self through the living and abiding word of God. And this word is the gospel we preach to you. So the idea here of speaking the truth in love is speaking, sharing, proclaiming, and applying the gospel, the truth of the gospel and the word of God to one another in our lives. See, this means that while, while there's lots of good works that we can be involved in and lots of things that are very important for us to be involved in, the primary ministry of the church, the building up of the body of Christ, the growth of the body is fundamentally word work. It's about spiritual growth through the word of God and focused on Christ. It's helping people become more like Jesus through the careful understanding and application 
of Scripture. Now, there are different types of, of this word work in the church. There's what we call the corporate word work or the public word work is what we're doing on, on Sunday mornings when you come and you, and you sit under the preaching of the word and we, uh, and we, and we sing together and we pray together. This is, the, this is the public work of the word. But there's also a, a personal work of the word. You go through the New Testament and you'll find that while, while the, the corporate gathering of the church and the ministry that happens there is very important, it's, it doesn't exhaust what the church is supposed to do. And in fact, there's a whole lot of things that we are commanded to do in the New Testament that we're not going to be able to do on a Sunday morning. Not in this kind of an, an environment. And so we, we need to recognize that there is a personal aspect to this ministry of speaking the truth in love to one another. This is very much what Paul Tripp says in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. He says, God transforms people's lives as people bring his word to others. That it's, it's word work as we bring the word of God to other people and seek to apply it to them. And as they do the same to us, that's how the body grows. And I think here in this passage, it's, it's this personal word work, this personal speaking the truth in love that's primarily in view. If you look at verse 25, so skip down a little bit further, Paul says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak the truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. Right? So it is, it's this personal work. Speak the truth, each one of you. Not, therefore, laying aside all falsehood, come to church to listen to somebody speak the truth to you. We think that's important, but that's not the only thing that's important. Speak the truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. And this is not just talking about evangelism, like evangel speak the truth to your unsaved neighbor. It's speak the truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So he's talking about the church. He's talking about the body. This is ministry that happens within the body of Christ. God has designed the body to grow through word work through speaking the truth of the gospel and the word of God in love to one another. Who's responsible for this growth? We've already seen it a couple places. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. Christ gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. So these are offices or, 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 or roles within the church. He's given some of these people to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. And so the, the work of ministry that causes the growth of the body, which is the speaking of the truth in love, is to be done by the saints as they're equipped as a part of the, the gathering of the church. And to clear up a misconception, the word saints does not just mean really holy people. Right? In the New Testament, most often the word saints refers to all of God's people. Not a special class of people. 
Now, depending on your background, this may be new for you. Saints doesn't just mean a, a, a certain group of extra holy people who have some miracles associated with them after they, they die. Saints is all of God's people. And you say, well, all of God's people are not that holy. How can they be called saints? would say, we're not called holy because we're holy. We're called holy because his holiness counts for us. When we trust Christ, his righteousness, his holiness, his standing before God becomes ours, and we can rightly be called saints. But we're also growing in holiness as the body grows in, up in love. So the work of ministry is to be done by the saints. The pastors who have been given to the church, their primary role is to equip the saints to do the ministry. Now, just so that you don't think I'm trying to get out of my job, as a pastor, my calling is to equip the saints. But as a Christian, my calling is the same as yours, to do the work of ministry. See the same idea in, in verse 16. Uh, from Christ, the whole body, the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. It's everybody participating in this, this work of ministry, this one principal work of speaking the truth of the word of God in love to one another. Everyone is to be involved. I make a point of saying this and specifying that the, the proper working of each individual part is a reference to this ministry, this word work of speaking the truth in love, because I want you to see that, again, while we're all gifted in different ways, that we are still commanded and expected to participate in this work, this work of bringing the word of God to other people. And you may say, well, I'm not a gifted teacher. I can't do that. And I would say that's the same thing as saying, I'm not a gifted evangelist, so I don't evangelize. Or I'm not gifted at giving, so I don't give. There are gifts, and then there are commands. This is something that God expects us to do. And if we want to be a church that advances the gospel by making disciples who make disciples, it's incumbent on us not just to affirm and agree with uh, the fact that this is how God has designed the body to grow. Say, yes, I believe that. I'm glad somebody else is going to do it. We need to all embrace this as God's divine design for the way the church is going to be built up, grow in spiritual maturity, to be personally committed to it. So where does that leave us? Well, I want to give you one suggestion to put into practice of how this could very practically happen in our church. And, and I praise God that it is happening in our church, but I want to see it happening more and more. So I'm going to give you a suggestion. If discipleship is fundamentally personal word work, a personal ministry of speaking the truth in love, then perhaps one of the most important things we can do is to be actively involved in discipling one another is to have a regular pattern of relational Bible reading to sit down and read the Bible 
with other people, to seek to understand it and apply it to our lives. Now, some of you do that as a part of a small group or a Bible study. That's wonderful. But I'm talking about something that's more mobile, simple, reproducible, and grassroots than that. Something where you, you go up to a person and say, I would love to read the Bible with you. Would you like to read the Bible with me? Listen to how Colin Marshall and Tony Payne describe this idea in their book, The Trellis and the Vine. What we're really talking about is a Bible reading movement in families, in churches, in neighborhoods, in workplaces, everywhere. Imagine if all Christians, as a normal part of their discipleship, were caught up in a web of regular Bible reading, not only digging into the Word privately, but reading it with their children before bed and with their spouse over breakfast, with a non-Christian colleague at work once a week over lunch, and with a new Christian for follow-up once a fortnight, and with a mature Christian friend once a month for mutual encouragement. It would be a chaotic web of personal relationships, prayer, and Bible reading, more a movement than a program, but at another level, it would be profoundly simple and within reach of all. It's an exciting thought, and it's hardly a controversial or outrageous idea. Many pastors would love their congregation to be involved in this kind of everyday Bible ministry. They wrote that last sentence, not me, but I would say amen. I would love that. Because you definitely don't need a seminary degree to do this. You don't need to have all the answers, and you don't, frankly, you don't need my permission to do it, to sit down with another person and read the Bible. What you need to do is pray that God would bring you someone that you could read with consistently. Maybe that's your spouse. Maybe that's your kids. Maybe that's somebody in your small group. Are you praying for anybody? God, who, who can you bring to me that I can read the Bible with so that we can encourage one another and point one another to Christ? And if you have a person, invite them to start reading the Bible with you, to, to understand it and apply it. And then start doing it. And then keep doing it. And then teach others to do it. And then repeat to the glory of God. You don't need to be an expert. You're getting together just to open the Bible and say, what does the Scripture say? You don't need the answers. Because if somebody asks you a question, you say, well, what does is, what is this passage that we're looking at say? Let's find out. It's a discipling relationships that, that, are, that are fueled around the Word of God. And it not only helps you to disciple other people, to help them grow, you'll find that as you do this, they are going to be doing the same thing with you, and you will grow too. So I want to give you a couple of resources to help you with this, with this idea. Two books, one's called One-to-One -one Bible Reading, can also be uh, one to two or one to three or one to a few Bible reading by David Helm. It walks you through just kind of this idea of what I'm talking about. It's very good. It's short, so you could read it. Uh, it's very short. Uh, the other one is, is like it. It's called Bible Reading with Your Kids by John Nielsen. And uh, this one, the subtitle is A Simple Guide for Every Father, but I have it on good authority that, that it works for mothers too. Um, and uh, this one takes the same kind of idea and says, now how do you do it with your kids? 
How do you do it with your kids at different stages in their, in their life? This isn't a silver bullet like, oh, if I start following all the directions in the book, everything's going to get better. But I can tell you, the more you're in the Word of God, generally speaking, the better your life is going to be. That may mean that it doesn't mean that there's not going to be suffering. But Charles Spurgeon once said, the person whose life is, is not falling apart uh, usually uh, has a Bible that is. I think I butchered that quote, but it's something like that. So what would it look like if every person here committed to practicing this kind of relational Bible reading, this kind of committed, regular uh, devotion to speaking the truth in love to others? How would our church grow corporately? How would each of us individually grow in maturity? How many people would, by God's grace, in Christ, in the work of the Holy Spirit, come to faith and embrace the Jesus that they meet in the Bible? How many people would be established and firmly rooted in the faith because someone came alongside them and helped them to understand the Scriptures? How many people would be growing in maturity and a desire for ministry because they've seen the fruit born out of their own life through this practice? What would it be like if the question who are you reading with, became a regular part of our culture? What would, it, what would that tell us or, or tell others about our convictions at the church, who we are, our convictions about the work of ministry? It's exciting to think about what God could do through us if we made such a commitment, not for our glory, but for the advance of the glorious gospel the grace of God as we seek to mature disciples in multiplied churches. So you with me?